name's Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. Most of life is not lived from the mountaintop. We have mountaintop experiences, but that is not the average experience of one's life. And if you expect life to be lived from a mountaintop, you may be uh, setting yourself up for disappointment. I'm not belittling mountaintop experiences. I remember when I was in high school, I uh, was in a band, and that band got to play in front of the whole school, and some bonehead was singing with us, and he, like, messed up. And just the band in the middle of this song, by Blink-182, it's embarrassing, I know. I was like 16, give me a break. I'm allowed to have bad taste on 16. Uh, they're still a band, and it's, they're 50, it's depressing. Uh, but he just stopped playing. And so we're up there in front of the whole school, and no music is coming out. And so I just do 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 do. I started playing Inspector Gadget. Do 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 do. Wow wow. And then the drummer comes in, and then all of a sudden it just became this thing. And then we went back into the song, and for weeks in the hallway, that's what I heard. Everyone's like, "Yeah, Inspector Gadget band, Mountaintop." I remember marrying my wife. We try to do that thing where, you know, I'm not looking and she's coming and then I, oh, wow, and they get it on. Yeah, but I didn't understand the instructions. And I turned around early. Mountaintop experience. Wow. Birth of my kids. Getting my, uh, finishing seminary. Becoming the first person in my family to get a master's degree. These mountaintop experiences, they're great. It's not how life is lived. And if, if we expect mountaintop experiences to to be the norm, we're going to miss a lot of beauty. And we can see this. Uh, I had an uncle and an aunt. I know that's not how you say that word, but there is a you in that word. I had an uncle and an aunt who I will, I, they, I had this experience with them. Uh, they, they decided to have a, a fight in front of the family. And she said, how come you never say you love me? You may have heard it. Like, people say this a lot. This, this exact argument. I've heard many places. I saw it. And my uncle said, I told you on the day we got married, and if anything changes, I'll, I'll let you know. Now, you can imagine they had a happy marriage. That's living life from the mountaintop. Oh, the mountaintop is what we need, and we'll get through the rest of life through those mountaintop experiences. When we do that, though, we run the risk of missing the sacred moments. And I'm not using that word flippantly. The sacred moments of the ordinary. God is at work in moments when we are just casually going through life, when we don't feel it, he's working. And our task is to grow in our awareness of his working. We don't want to live on the mountaintop, but we can grow a greater awareness of his presence, of his life-changing power, in moments that most people miss. You know, uh, there's this old story that's been told about Amy, you have to forgive me, is it, what's the really expensive, uh, Stradivarius. 
Stradivarius is in, I didn't hear the end of the word. Uh, but you know, there's like this famous video, somebody's playing a very expensive violin on a New York City subway and everybody's walking by them. And they're like, see, we don't notice beauty in the ordinary. And I want to be like, cut those people some slack. Like, they're trying to get to work. They're not at a concert, right? Like, but, you know, they're not, they didn't, like, and there's all these buskers around them all the time. I'm sorry they missed something beautiful happening. That's not what we're talking about here this morning. We are talking about most of us miss amazing, ordinary ways God is working, where we can experience Emmanuel, God with us. And it's not to guilt us to be like hypersensitive and hyper-aware. It's a skill that we can learn to grow our awareness of his life-giving presence and experience transformation. The passage that we're going to look at this morning has to be read through those lenses that we just described. That what changes us is God's life-giving presence. And he grows our awareness of his working in ordinary moments. We're about to read a passage where just at face value, Paul says something shocking. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does that mean? Like, am, I supposed to, am I supposed to be afraid all the time? Work out my salvation. I thought salvation was a free gift from God. I thought, like, God moved toward me in grace, and I thought he loves me and likes me. Now I'm being told to work it out with fear and trembling. That's confusing. And then we get travel log. I'm going to send Timothy to you. Oh, I'm going to send Epaphrodites back to you. And we're like, what is, can we just skip this and get to some good stuff? I recently, I heard a podcast this week. I will not say his name publicly because you've heard of him. But he said when he preaches passages that have things like this, he preaches what's really important. And it's not this stuff, it's other stuff in the passage. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's a very low view of the Bible. We do not have a low view of the Bible around here. I truly believe, I'm deeply convinced, deep in my bones, that God wants us to know why Paul was sending Timothy, why he's sending Epaphrodite to the Philippians. Even though we don't know who Timothy is, we don't know who Epaphrodite is, and we don't really know who the Philippians are. This information is life-changing. It's ordinary moments that if we really are living out, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, when we understand what that means, we then see God is working in these ordinary moments. So we're going to get that. We're going to talk about identity. Who are we as a people? What does it mean that we're a people who live with fear and trembling? What does that mean? Then Paul gives us two ways, one through Timothy, one through Epaphrodites, to live this out. One, I'm just going to tell you up front because there's a lot going on in this passage. One is through encouragement. We are a people who regularly build each other up through encouragement. And he's modeling that through Timothy. Next, he says this through Epaphroditus. We create space for people to experience Jesus who have physical weaknesses. We're a people who create space for people with physical weaknesses. We create space for people, adults with Down syndrome, people who are deaf. We see weakness and we move toward weakness. Widows. Orphans, students, single, divorced. We move toward weakness because of this idea of fear and trembling. Now, 
Somebody gave me feedback on some of this series, and I loved it. It was awesome. It was hilarious. They're like, I leave here so mad at you on Sundays. They're like, I hear you describe, let's be a high love, high joy, high hesed place. This is impossible. And I get so frustrated. And so I want to give us some four very practical ways that we can really do this. So we're, what does it mean to be a people who live in fear and trembling? So we got we to gotta talk about that. What are two ways we can do that? Through affirming each other and through creating space for those of us with physical weaknesses. And then to do that, we got to be highly relational. So what are some skills that we can do that? So we're also going to learn from Rue McCullany. Does anyone know her name on the right, Rue? McClanahan? Rue McClanahan. Thank you. We're going to learn from... Rue's going to be visiting us today. So, if you have a passage... Passage? If you have a Bible, please turn to the passage of Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 30. Philippians 2, 12 through 30. And if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Philippians 2, 12 to 30. Luke told me not to walk past that line. I did. Sorry, Luke. Therefore, dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. For I have nobody else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests and not to those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. He was ill. He almost died. But God had mercy on him, not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him. He almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life 
to make up the help you yourselves could not give me. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we need help. We need help truly living out, working out our salvation with fear and trembling. God, I pray that your spirit would open our eyes to see what that means and that the fruit of that, understanding that means that we encourage each other and we create space for our physical weaknesses. God, our world, our crooked generation that we live in needs us shining like stars. God, they don't need us wagging our finger. God, they need us experiencing a greater awareness of who you are and what you've done in our lives. Ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. When Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, that can easily just create confusion and anxiety. What's he talking about? What does it really mean? What does it look like for someone to work out their salvation with fear and trembling? It's almost distracting. We've been talking so far in the series that Paul's prayer for the Philippian church is, hey, I want you to be a place where love abounds. Where it, chapter 1, verse 9, that your love would grow. So places where it is, it would get stronger. Places where it isn't, it would multiply. All right? Now he's saying, do that with fear. I thought there was no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. What is happening here? What exactly is Paul inviting us to do when he says, work out our salvation with fear and trembling? One of the confusing things about language is that we can use the same word to mean different things. All right, think about awesome, right? The Grand Canyon is awesome. It literally inspires awe. Mizzou winning, winning their homecoming game yesterday is awesome. Not the same thing. I don't know if anyone was awed by that. Amazed, but not awed. Paul is doing the same thing with the word salvation. I do not believe Paul is saying this. Work out your salvation, i.e. earn your God's favor, i.e. try really hard to be saved. I do not think he's saying that. It's actually clear to me he's not saying that. I believe Paul is saying this. You can change because God has radically recreated your identity. Look with me again at Philippians 2.12. This is what it says. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because God, it is God who works in you to act, to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Here's what he's saying. The word work is used twice. Work out your salvation. Why? Because God is the worker. All right? Accomplish, bring about your transformation. Why? Because God is in you working on your desires. Live out those desires that God has put in you and is transforming you because he's using those desires for you to get stuff done that accomplishes good purpose. It's an invitation to participate in something God has already done. This series is called Identity and Belonging because the way we change is by understanding we have a different identity. We are people who God lives in us. Paul says in Philippians 2, 
uh, verse 1, if there is any encouragement from being united in Christ, union with Christ, we've been made one with Jesus. Think back, we were, uh, last year we went through Galatians and we talked about just like a tree, you can graft a branch onto a tree. So that branch was not part of that tree. And then it gets grafted, and now it's part of that tree, and the life-giving energy from that tree goes into the branch. That's what Paul's saying. Participate in your transformation because God is in you. He's that life-giving energy, providing both the desire and the work. It's about paying attention to what he's already done. Please do not... We can't go further if you think, okay... I've got to really try harder to be the type of person God wants me to be. No, no, no. What, what Paul is saying is God has transformed us. And our, all we need to do is live out of that identity. Now, we don't all the time. We call that living by the flesh. We call that sinning. We call that living in a way that's inconsistent with who we are. Paul is saying we get to participate. There's a command there. Work out your salvation. Participate in this transformation. Live into who he's already made us to be. Grow, like, join. Don't be disintegrated. Where it's like, oh, you know, I'm a, I'm a wealthy heir of a billionaire, but I live on the streets. That's disintegration. It's, oh, I've been made new by God. Here, I'm a different person coming into these situations. Identity. Who am I? They're like, well, what, what's the difference? It's radical. If we think, oh, I've got to try harder. I've got to work at the, I've got to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. It means be afraid because if I, if I drop the ball, God's going to kick me out. The, the difference between that and here's who God's made me and I want to just grow more aware of that and I want to live in reality. The difference between that is the difference between Michael Jordan and Steph Curry. Steve Kerr, the, the coach of the Golden State Warriors, played in the 90s with Jordan and he coaches Steph Curry. And allegedly, Steve Kerr was once asked, who's the greatest competitor you've been around? He said, well, there's two. There's, there's Michael Jordan and Steph Curry, but they're really different. Michael Jordan was motivated by anger. Steph Curry was motivated by joy. They're miles apart. Miles apart. That's what Paul's talking about. You're like, wait, like the Christian life, doing all this stuff, I just need to do it. No, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying we need to lay hold of this identity, understanding the gospel, understanding this encouragement from union with Jesus. That's the white of the page. It's 2 verse 1. This argument flows out of that. We can't talk about those two ways Paul wants us to live that out if we ignore this. It does, we don't just start with, hey, let's encourage each other. It's really nice to encourage each other. You know, people don't get a lot of encouragement. Let's be an encouraging place. Won't that be swell? That's great. I'm not trying to knock that. I, more encouragement versus less encouragement is better. But we're not encouraging, and we don't create space for people with physical limitations just because that's the right thing to do. We do that because we've, we've met the resurrected Savior, and he's fundamentally changed us. God lives in us. We are the temple. The living God lives in us, and he's changing our desires. And we need to listen 
to what God is doing and join in and participate. And doing that is living out our, our transformation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling is compared in this passage with two other things, grumbling and arguing. Paul is saying we live out our salvation with fear and trembling. He uses that phrase three times in the New Testament, and each time it's not talking about fear and trembling directed at God. It's directed about fear and trembling in our situations. I think what he's saying is this. We live our lives in, with reverence, recognizing that God is at work even in mundane moments. And how can we be aware and how can we join what he's doing? I've never served. I assume in the Midwest, most of you have never served. What people say with surfing lessons is you're not creating waves. You're trying to recognize what waves are good. And then you just join in with the wave that's already coming. That's the Christian life. What has God already done? And how can I join with what he's doing? It's not about creating the wave. It's not about, okay, I got a will and to work. I got to desire that. I don't desire that. No, no, no. Do you trust Jesus for salvation? Yes. He's changed you. I don't feel like that. Oh, well, our mood is not our authority. God's word is our authority. So you have to ask yourself, well, I don't feel like that. Well, what does his word say? Well, his word says God is working at me to desire his good purpose. Okay, let's trust that and let's look for that. And then Paul then gives us two mon seemingly mundane ways we can do that. One through Timothy and one through this guy, Epaphroditus. So Timothy, Paul says this, I'm sending Timothy back uh, to you. I hope to send him to you soon. And what Paul is doing as he describes Timothy is he's trying to create, here's how we can live out this identity, through encouraging each other. Listen to how he talks about Timothy, okay? Starting verse 19, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have nobody else like him. What does he say about him? This guy's unique. I don't know if you know about Paul. Paul's not like a soft, fuzzy, like feel good, just want to encourage you all the time kind of person. There was a guy, John Mark, who disagreed with Paul in the book of Acts. And Paul's like, he's done. We're out of here. I don't care. I, we're done with John Mark. He is a nuisance. To now where he's saying this. I don't have anybody else like this guy. He shows genuine concern. Everybody else looks out for their own interests, not of Jesus. But he has proven character. Paul's living out things that he says to several churches, both the Thessalonian church and the church in Ephesus. First Thessalonians 5.11, build each other up, encourage each other. Ephesians 4, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only such that builds up. Paul is modeling that. He's saying God's made us new, and we live out that new identity in these mundane moments through building each other up with our words through encouraging. Can you imagine if you're Timothy heading into a hard situation and Paul says, I don't have anybody like Timothy. What a powerful motivator that would be. Can you imagine in our church family if we had the lion's share of us said, I don't want to be people who grumble and argue. I want to be people who live in reverence. Look, there are... It takes roughly about between 40 to 45 people every Sunday to make a Sunday service happen. There are so many men and women 
who are serving behind the scenes, both in children's, greeters, music, tech, all kinds of ways. Sunday school teachers downstairs, people are serving. And, and what happens is, if we don't encourage that, we're missing opportunities to live in fear and trembling. It's very easy. It, is a, it takes very little skill, almost no skill, to grumble and complain. Anybody can point out what's going wrong. There, we live in a fallen world. Something's going wrong with everything. You know, the midterms are coming up, and so my YouTube ads are just flooded with all these political ads. And it's very obvious to me, like, who, what ads come from people who've been in authority and what ads come from people who've never held authority in their life. The ones that have never held authority in their life, regardless of political party, have all the answers. Like, here's what's going wrong, and here's what you need to fix it. Boom, boom, boom. You're welcome. And it's like, yeah. I would love to see how much of this actually gets enacted on when you actually get the pressure of being in charge. It's so easy. It does not reflect who we are. Well, you know what's wrong with my church? Here. Here's my laundry list of everything going wrong. I'm not saying we can't ask questions. I'm not saying there's not appropriate ways to say, hey, can you help me understand? This doesn't make sense. That's part of a healthy community. That's not what we're talking about here. Paul's talking about grumbling and arguing. Not asking questions, seeking clarity. Please hear me clearly. Paul's talking about grumbling and arguing. Here's what he says, why this matters. Verse 15, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine like stars among them in the sky. When we encourage, we tell the world there's a new way of being. You may not know these names, but there are people in this church, and these are just a few. I'm missing, but like people like Gary Giles, people like Mark Fremantle, people like Heather Keefe, people like Julie Casey. These are people who have lost a ton of sleep and put in a ton of hours to serve our community in ways we're not even aware of. Some of the reasons we're not even aware of them are because they've done such a great job. Like, I don't know if you, I, I don't know if you feel it. It's hot in here. Mostly because I'm under the lights. Is everybody okay? If your neighbor's dozing off, just raise your hand. I'll walk up to you. But those, those the AC broke. That's taken a ton of time. Heather Keefe, I, I, she explained air conditioning systems to me. and it, I think she, like, in her spare time, took like, a graduate course on HVACs. I mean, it was incredible the amount of detail and time that she invested in it. Those fans, I don't know if you know, they don't have legs. People just like brought those up here to keep us comfortable. There's all kinds of ways people are serving. And to live with fear and trembling is to recognize, hey, thank you. Man, I'm so encouraged that you anonymously volunteer so much time just so that we're comfortable. We don't even say, hey, I'm so encouraged that you step into conflict. That's really hard. Man, thank you for serving our community by doing that. I'm so encouraged that you dealt with the city to deal with that whole retention pond mess so that we, you know, th that... Craig didn't have to, and so then we didn't have these mind-wandering sermons because he didn't have any time to prep. Thank you for doing that. There's so many ways God is working, and when we see it and celebrate, we're living out of our day. We encourage, not because it's the nice thing to do, but because in our weakness, sin, God came and met us in our weakness. And so we, by bringing, we bring strength to situations by encouraging, not grumbling and complaining. That's what Paul's describing. And it's for witness, like he says in verse 15, that we can shine like stars in a crooked generation. 
It's really hard to be a teacher right now. I don't know if you're aware of that. I can only imagine teachers get blamed for everything that's wrong with their kid. My kid hit somebody. What do you teach them in school? Right? Like, how, how come my kid can't read uh, Dostoevsky yet? Like, come on, what are you teaching in second grade? What's wrong with you, teachers? Like, teachers didn't really get a break from the pandemic. It just, like, it happened, and then life kept going on. What if, as a witness, we just said, hey, my kid's teacher, man, thank you. Thank you for serving our community. Like, a lot of these little kids, we don't know the home lives they have, and you get to be a, a stable person in their life. Thank you. You know, the first time, I'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're welcome. If we keep doing that, if that's our posture, you know what starts to happen? What's wrong with you? Like, why are you being so nice? And we're able to say, hey, God met me in my weakness, and I just want to meet you in yours. That's why we encourage. It flows out of who we are. We're not saying, okay, I've got to be an encouraging person so God will bless me. No, he's already transformed me, and I can just live in sync with who he is and what he's doing in my world. I can catch that wave. I don't have to create it. That's all through Timothy. Epaphroditus. You may be less familiar with Epaphroditus. I was less familiar with Epaphroditus because I spelled his name wrong on these slides. But here's what's going on with Epaphroditus. Paul is separated from the church in Philippi. He's far away. All right, this is before Venmo. This is before Apple Pay. Uh, this is before Grubhub. They want to help Paul out. They have to send someone physically to Paul. Okay, so they're separated by geography. Paul needs support. So they send this guy, Epaphroditus. They're like, all right, Epaphroditus, you go help Paul. Great. We're going to give you some money. You're going to go help him out. Only problem, Epaphroditus gets sick. So Epaphroditus goes to Paul, gets sick, isn't able to be the help that he was supposed to be. Now, we're going to read some verses that can absolutely change your life. Here we go. This is starting in verse 25. I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who's also your messenger, whom you sent to care for my needs. That verse is absolutely life-changing. And this is why we don't skip passages of the Bible, because they don't make sense at first. The Roman Empire had a cultural ethos called honor-shame. If you behaved in a shameful way, we kicked you out of the community because you're going to harm the community. If you behaved in an honorable way, we celebrated you. We don't really live in an honor-shame culture, though like we're, we have elements of it, like social media is totally honor-shame. You do something we don't like, we're going to shame you online. But think about it like this. It's Thanksgiving, and you've made the turkey. You've invited all your friends over. Like, you're really trying to keep up with, like, Reese Witherspoon, and, like, your house is, like, beautifully set. You're ready to go, and it's that moment. you got the butterball. You're carrying out of the kitchen into the dining room, and you trip, and you fall, and you fall on the turkey. Ooh. Everybody make sure you're okay. Everybody helps you. You get up. You know, you're a little burned. You get situated, you come back to dinner. Ten minutes later, it hits you. Oh, we've got nothing to eat, and I invited all these people over here. That feeling that you feel, that shame, that's what Epaphroditus would have expected. That was the cultural norm. The Philippian church sent him to Paul. Paul is very important. He's doing very important work. We want to participate in that. Epaphroditus, you're representing us. Go help. He gets sick. 
What does Paul say? Look back again at verse 25. I think it's necessary to pen Epaphrodites back to you. And in an honor-shame culture, like, yeah, we're so sorry about that guy. We'll send you somebody better. How does he describe him? My brother, co-worker, fellow soldier, who is also your messenger. The word messenger is the same word for apostle. Paul is talking about Epaphrodites like he's an equal. These people knew Epaphrodites. He did not need an introduction. They sent him. I'm sending Epaphrodites back to you. Who's Epaphrodites? My co-worker. My buddy in the trench. The guy who's laboring for the same things I am with the same skill level as I am. Your apostle. He's honoring someone who should have been shamed according to the cultural standards. And by doing so, Paul is saying there's a different way we are in the world. We honor those who deserve shame. Now please don't hear me say, he's not talking about people who behave badly. He's not talking about like, hey, Epaphrodites stole some money, you know, he did some drinking, he spent all that church funds at the casino, down on the boat. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, he had a weakness, a physical weakness that kept him from, from being as effective as he desired. We all, by God's grace, encounter physical weaknesses. I'm 35 years old. As I look through family photos, I'm like, oh my gosh, my hair is getting gray. Is my forehead getting bigger? And I'm very self-conscious about it. I wish I wasn't. I don't know if it's like a shallow thing in me. But like I used to like pluck the grays. And then it got to a point where I was like, oh, it's too much time. There's too many grays. And now there's, if I pluck the grays, I have no hair left. And as I bump up, I'm like, what? Why does this bother me? It's because I'm bumping up on middle age. It's because I'm bumping up against the reality like, I'm not going to be around forever. I'm going to die. What's going to happen as I get older? Like, are people going to care what I'm saying as I get older? Am I going to become irrelevant? Do people care? And these are messages that we all swim in. This person, you may not know him. This is Jared Leto. He's been in some great movies and some terrible movies. He's been in Fight Club. Morbius, is that a terrible movie, right? Do you know how old this man is? This man is 50 years old. All right? These two people are the same age in this picture. They are separated by one year. And if you can't tell me who's older, I'm not telling you. This does not make me excited to age. Now I have to like, I have to look like I'm 25 or nobody's going to care. As a church, as we start to see and recognize weaknesses, what do we do? When we people who've been united with Jesus recognize, and I'm not just talking about aging, though we all, if by God's grace you live long enough, you will experience the pain of aging, of wondering like, man, everything is marketed to people who are my grandkids' age. Does anybody care about me? It's a lonely endeavor. And it's not just aging that creates these physical limitations. People who are suffering with the grief of being a widow or a widower. 
people among us who experience singleness that they don't necessarily want. The Bible has a high view of singleness, but if you're single in a church environment where everybody is married, it feels like a weakness. People who've been divorced, people who are living with chronic illness, cancer, autoimmune issues, adults with Down syndrome, the deaf, people who had strokes, when people who've been united to Jesus encounter weakness, what do we do? Do we treat it like that long hallway at Southern Seminary? When I went to Southern Seminary, there was this long hallway. And I remember I had a professor who said, say hi to people in that hallway. Don't pretend you see them. And I saw him in that hallway. And I remember, oh man, I gotta say hi to him. He's gonna say hi to me. And we, you know, it's like really long. And we start to get close to each other. And then he starts looking at the wall. I was like, oh, I'm never listening to you again. He's written books, too. Don't read them. <laughs> Kidding. When we, see, when we see weakness, do we treat that, do we treat that like that professor in that hallway? I didn't see that. Paul is saying we move toward weakness. This is an amazing verse in here. Verse 29. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him. Compass Church, how are we honoring those among us experiencing weakness? Or do we just pretend we don't see it? That's not who we are. While we were, and originally in Romans 5 it says, weak, Christ died for us. God moved toward us in our weakness, therefore we can move toward each other in weakness. And look, we don't have to have all the answers. I have no idea how an adult with Down syndrome experiences our building. Is, is this a space that's conducive for those of, among us, friends, family members, who experience different things? I don't know. But we're going to move toward that. We're going to move toward people in weaknesses. And in doing so, we shine like stars in the world. And this is hard, right? How do we always encourage? You know, sometimes we don't like to encourage because we're like, well, I don't want to puff people up, right? You know, I, I don't want to encourage people because I want to get a big head. How do I move toward people in weakness? I have no idea how to do that. I just want to teach a, a relational skill that we can use because this takes being relational, right? Paul is contrasting here being fear, living in fear and trembling and grumbling and arguing. It's not, when we're, when we're grumbling and arguing, we're not being relational. To live with fear and trembling, we have to have our relationship circuits on. So there's just a practical skill set to do that. It's called relational cake. It comes from Jim Wilder. And you can remember cake. You get to have your cake and eat it too. We are not being relational when we are not curious. That's a sign that we're not being relational. So when we see someone's weakness and we just assume a bunch, that's not curiosity and a sign that our relational circuits are off and we might be sliding toward grumbling and complaining, not our identity, is that we've lost curiosity. How can we be curious with people? Hey, tell me more about that. I heard you say you were at the hospital last week. Can you tell me about that? Leading with curiosity is a way we can stay relational. Appreciation is another way we can stay relational. And we're going to need this to encourage each other. That is encouragement. Hey, Mark Fremantle... 
I so appreciate how you're at the, you have crazy stories of things that happen in our parking lot at 2 a.m. because you're so regularly here at 2 a.m. taking care of things. I appreciate the sacrifice. Thank you. That's relational. Who are the people in your life you can show appreciation to? Kindness. When we stop being kind, when we start grumbling and complaining, that's a sign our relational circuits are off. Kindness is how we maintain those relational circuits. Man, I see that weakness. What's something I can do for you? Hey, look, I'm really afraid to talk about your weakness because I'm going to say something I fear might offend you. Can you, like, please tell me if I say something that offends you? That's an act of kindness. That's staying relational. Rather than like, oh, I, I don't even know what to say to these people, right? I mean, geez, you, you say anything and everybody gets offended. Lead with kindness. Hey, how can I avoid that? I, you got to forgive me. I got a really big mouth. My dad told me I could make money with my mouth, not my hands. So, you know, I always say things that offend, offend people. You, will you tell me when I've done that? Kindness. The last one may sound weird, but it actually, this is, this is and he's a neuroscientist. He talks about when we stop making eye contact, that's a surefire way our relational circuits are off. Watch. Next time a conflict breaks out, look at the person and watch where their eyes go. How can we just, it's an easy way that we can stay relational. Keep eye contact. Hey, you see someone being weak, you're encouraging someone, look them in the eyes. Quick, what color are my eyes? It's not a relational place. Just kidding. Uh, I don't even remember this picture being taken. Uh, I sort of do. I was coming to, I was in the hospital. Uh, in, in seminary, Amy and I went to this church where we were the youngest people by far. By far. And, and we went to this connection group with lots of people who I think our youth brought out some insecurities in them, and so they would regularly tell us like, man, I'm so old. Man, here's the vitamins I take. Man, here's all the medication I'm on. And so one day, I just was like, well, tell me about your medication. And they started rattling off their vitamins and rattling off their medication. And I was like, I can out-vitamin you and out-medicate you. I'm on way more drugs than you are. And they're like, well, what do you mean? I was like, I, I don't mean to, I know aging is different. It's different saying, oh, my body's falling apart and it's never going to come back. That's a different pressure to deal with. But when I, was, when I was in my late 20s in seminary, uh, I started getting really sick, really sick, debilitatingly sick. Uh, and I uh, lost a ton of weight. I went down to 137 pounds, 6'2". Uh, no one knew what it was. And I just remember this like, burning pain in my stomach. It felt like there was like bricks with nails in it just going through my digestive system. So uh, at the seminary I was at, I went into the health clinic. They had a doctor and a nurse practitioner. And the doctor was out, and the nurse practitioner comes in. And I'll never forget this. She comes in and goes, oh, my God. I was like, yes. She goes, you look awful. I think you have cancer. I got to get the doctor. And she leaves. And she left me alone with my thoughts for an hour. Cancer. Jeez. Like, they can treat that, right? Man never going to have kids. Man, am I going to die before I'm 30? Oh my gosh, this is depressing. And so eventually seeing other doctors, I ended up getting diagnosed with an autoimmune disease called Crohn's disease. And I was able to get on medication and be the joyful basket I am today. But one of the things that happened to me while I was 
between like not knowing if I was going to recover or not, not knowing if I was just going to spend the rest of my life just on a couch, just constantly sick, not able to eat anything, not able to hold anything down, while I'm not sure what recovery looked like. I remember just feeling like this vulnerability of just like, is this how I have to go through the rest of my life? Remember I watched SNL and Andrew Garfield ran out and he jumped down with his knees and jumped up. And I was like, I'm never going to have the strength to do that. Oh my gosh. What's my life going to look like? And as I was struggling with that, one of the things that happened was just out of the woodwork. Once it, once it became known that I had Crohn's disease, so many people came up to me. Like, I'm sick too. Here's what I have. And it just became so abundantly clear to me. Some of the most forgotten people in our midst are people who regularly suffer. Some of the most forgotten people are people who suffer with chronic illness, are people who suffer with just debilitating things that they just keep private. What if we were a place where people felt that we would be kind with their weakness? That we would obey Paul when he says, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him. That people with weakness would not feel they need to hide it. When we started this series, you were given a survey question that said this, I expect people will say kind things about my weakness here. How do we build a high-hested relationship? We've got to share our weakness. That's the only way people can be kind. Identity is the most powerful change agent in our lives. And opportunities to encourage and to create space for people with weakness help us live into that identity. That we are a people who recognize God can work through chronic illness. We're a people who recognize God can work through people serving when we encourage them. And that we get to live in fear and trembling when we just notice it and create space for it. Father, Father, I pray that we would be a people who know who you say we are. That we're loved, we're united to Jesus. And from that identity, we'd move toward those of us who are weak. And we would encourage those of us who have been re re reflecting you to our community. Let's all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.